This is Curated Chill, the Aspire Design and Home Podcast. This week, we are going back to the future and back again with award-winning set decorator Rosemary Brandenburg. You had an opportunity to meet Rosemary back in episode number one. This is the full conversation with Brandenburg, a chat that spans generations back and her work on the highly acclaimed film Amistad. And then we go generations into the future, or perhaps simply other galaxies, and examine her work on the Star Wars franchise. It's important to note that without the art department working tirelessly to craft the imagery that defines the characters, and without a talented set decorator to dress a set that actually reflects the character from the written word, the experience could not be the same. Set decorators do just that. They take the written word and apply reality to the characters, the very same characters we love and love to hate. If you enjoy what you're hearing, check out all the related links in the show notes that will immerse you in the infinitely creative Aspire design and home ecosystem. And make sure you are subscribing to Curated Chill so you don't miss a single episode. You can find the show everywhere you find your favorite podcasts. Now, more than ever before, it's so important to take care of the fabrics that make up incredible design. High quality furnishings are an investment. As with any investment, you need to protect it. Removing stains is easy with Fiber Seal, and the most talented designers will tell you that caring for the fabric is critical to its longevity. Just about every homeowner will tell you that stains happen. Protecting fine furnishings with Fiber Seal gives your clients the best opportunity for success in stain removal. Designers, recommend to your clients that they protect their fine furnishings with Fiber Seal. Why? Well, Fiber Seal is a suite of products, protective treatments, at home care products, as well as superior customer service. And the most popular products are GreenGuard Gold Certified. Each treatment comes with superior service from a company dedicated to protecting your fine fabrics, carpets, and rugs from stains and environmental factors that damage fine textiles. You can work with Fiber Seal for pre testing before you make your textile selects. They are industry partners of both ASID and the Interior Design Society. So, they understand the needs of the design community and how to care for fine furnishings. Visit FiberSeal online to learn more about how it works. You can also connect online FiberSealNortheast.com and on Instagram at FiberSealNortheast. Rosemary and I talked about the differences between set decorators and interior designers. She also shares her thoughts on the roles and responsibilities as it relates to the look and the feel of the final television and movie projects on which she works? Well, it's a title, um, and we do a lot of design work, but it's a collaborative design, and we work within a framework within um, where we work with a lot of different designers. So it's a village. It's fast. I mean, you, you don't have the luxury of sort of dashing off a drawing and then waiting 16 weeks to have it done like some of the other uh, activities in the interior design world or or even architectural design of any kind it's it's a fast-paced operation so there's slices of the pie that have grown up over you know with some differences regionally but generally set decorators take care of a slice of it because it would be overwhelming for any department to be in charge of the whole thing because it's very ambitious what we do um and um it's uh 
you know, people come up with different definitions of it, but, you know, in a nutshell, we're responsible for the things that surround the action, the actors, the furnishings, but then we do tons of stuff outside. I mean, we can do laundry lists or we try to come up with definitions all day long. Half the time we piss people off when we make definitions because we encroach on what other people consider their job, but it's uh, it's not easy to define. Every creative I have ever spoken with, they have their own unique origin story. The how they got into the business. Here's Rosemary's. I mean, it's, you know, since girlhood, creating you know so many people have the story of oh they didn't we didn't want the commercially available doll houses we want to make our own and we wanted to make the tables out of rocks and you know cut up scraps from mom's sewing box to make everything and you know the, I, I used to, i mean i had to have a candle lit dinner and one and i almost burnt the house down so you know every i but i've heard this story from lots of set decorators this is how we roll and i'm sure many other people in the design world you just you take what you have and suddenly you realize oh my god that's my thing but i was also the sarah Barn- bernhardt of the family you know and in, in another world maybe i would have become an actress I, I tried that but it scared me to death i was just didn't have the confidence to put myself on the stage but in Interpreting character is in, is the, is so fun, and it's the best part. It's part of it. It's a big part of it. Um, starting with story and character. Um, starting with um, there's arcs of history that goes into a lot of the projects I do, where you have to really understand what's gone on before. When I do franchise films, so you have a giant vast history to learn, you know, and, you, and then you have to bring your own interpretation to that. Um, you can do, um, care, you know, there's definitely arcs of history when you do period work, you know. So the people are, the, the characters are partially influenced by the era that they come from and partially influenced by the writer's point of view because even period stories are really stories of today. I mean, you know, Cleopatra, the film, you know, her eye makeup and fabulous look had nothing to do with what they really wore in Egypt. Obviously, it's through the lens of now. So there's a lot of that stuff going on, too. I remember on uh, Amistad, I was because I'm a historian's daughter, I was roundly warned um, not to be so literal about what was true in history and just simplify things a little bit, you know, that kind of stuff. So you have to be, you know, you're dealing with character and you're dealing with story and you're dealing with history and you're dealing with style. There's so many different layers that go into it. It's not one thing, but starting with character and story is a very, very, very good place to start. And it's my favorite place to start. And when I'm dealing with all the technical stuff, like how the heck am I gonna get this thing built? um, I love to take that break every day and just go, can I have a character 10 minutes please? And just think about what's really going on in this tale. Because there's a lot of logistics, too. So there's, it's multifaceted. Isn't it equally scary being in front of the camera as a performer and having her work serve as the canvas in front of which the entire story develops and unfolds on screen? Oh, definitely. But somehow hiding behind the curtain of a set was just more comfortable for me. Um, and especially as a young person, I just grew up very shy. I've you know, I continue to struggle with confidence, but it's just, um, you know, my makeup, but it's a lot better. I certainly am no uh, shrinking violet in meetings and, um, um, you know, manage to 
put forth a fairly good <laughs> presentational image now, but in the beginning I was shy. Don't many of the major struggles share certain characteristics? There are similarities between Amistad and Star Wars. No, really. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's the thing uh, about, especially because both of them had a lot to do with Steven Spielberg. So, um, you know, that is his genre. He loves to tell stories about the triumph of positivity and optimism. And that's, those are that, those are the stories. And the triumph over evil, you know, I mean, slavery and, um, is just like the first order. So, um, you know, or at least not just like it, but there are absolute similarities. So um, those stories telling those tales, but then you, you know, diving into the characters um, uh, and all that is, is great. But, you know, I mean, they're all kind of fabricated environments. I mean, you can't walk into a town and shoot when you're doing Amistad because it doesn't look like 1840. So, um, you know, you're constantly coming up with solutions and suggestions and how are we going to bring the audience into this world and how are we going to make a surround for these characters that make sense and how do we interpret the story in this place? We were shooting in some amazing places in, on Amistad, like back east. We shot a lot back east and did, um, you know, like things like uh, uh, historic towns in Rhode Island and um uh, kind of Connecticut and a lot of the New England um, did some took took some wonderful period locations, but they still weren't right either for the story or they needed to be altered. Um, so that was great. And then when you do a Star Wars, guess what? You got to completely recreate create an art. Then you don't even have a town you can start with. You have to make the town first, and then you have to put all the layers on into it. So it's just the whole. I love projects where you have to start from absolute scratch. It was funny. Recently, I did a, a domestic comedy in L.A., um, which I don't actually do those that often. And it was kind of like, oh, I have to go get regular furniture <laughs> and interpret. It was called Yes Day. It was a charming story with uh, Jennifer Garner. And, um, but it was kind of like, oh, yeah, I, I almost forgot how to do that. <laughs> It was funny, but it, we did a great job, and it was really fun actually interpreting those characters with regular stuff. So it was, but again, we had to build a house completely from scratch. So you know, that's kind of how we do it. How are the roles similar between interior design and set decoration? What what are some of the challenges with regard to specification and securing product? Well, the design of the house obviously is done by the uh, the between the production designer, there are directors and the set designers, they, they take care of the architecture side of it. Um, and probably so that the, to the point of usually they design cabinetry and things like that. Whereas I, from what my, my understanding, I've never been in interior design, but from what I understand, usually um, a designer, uh, an interior designer would manage that kind of thing. But again, it's all about slicing up the pie so that, um, and certainly when I work in the US, I don't do that part. I don't build the cabinetry. Um, I, I'm, believe me, I'm looking over the shoulder of the set designer as it's being built and making suggestions and saying, um, where are we going to put the microwave exactly? You know, and, and just making sure that it works because from a character point of view. So I do my best to influence kindly that process. And, um, and, and it's a back and forth, just like, because it, it becomes 
immediately a collaboration. So that's the other difference between an interior designer and a set decorator is we we're, you know, we're in the middle of a triangle trying to get all this move forward. And, and the other difference from what I understand is speed it has to happen really quick. So um, we, um, so uh, the, the regular house, did we use prop houses? Well, sort of, but then it was, first of all, going to be used for a long period of time. So prop houses became less um, cost effective because of course you're paying by the week. And second of all, they uh, decided to have a lot of destruction in the house. So there was a very funny, you know, comic bit at the end where um, I hope you see it, but you know, mayhem ensues. So that precluded and it involved fluids. So uh, therefore <laughs> it wasn't very advisable to rent things or lease things. So yeah, we ended up running around. I mean, a lot of times we needed to go to retail um, it was just, we just had to have available things um, and some things we couldn't find and, and built, you know, and there's also budget restrictions on a lot of these projects. Some of the things that are available in design showrooms are beyond our financial means. So we need to run around and find economical stuff that looks great, but maybe isn't as expensive. Um, it depends. I mean, and also we don't have time for 16 week leads and things like that. There's just no way. So we end up um, cobbling it together. I mean, it's like, oh, I, I, you know, and we hire people that we call buyers who help us run around and find things because there's, um, you know, you're sort of at the hub of the of the of the project. I'm doing a lot of meetings and a lot of planning and learning how they want to shoot it. And I can't be in two places at once. I can't do that and be out in a, in the different showrooms. Again, generally retail. Sometimes, sometimes the beautiful design showrooms. I love it when I get to go there, but it doesn't always happen. So that's how you do a regular movie. Um, can I? Do I love our prop houses? Yes. But when I'm doing a project on location in a different city or a different country, it's a whole different ballgame. I mean, you don't have time to ship things always from the LA prop houses. There's a few, there's prop houses in New York, there's prop houses where I am at currently speaking from, which is, which is Atlanta. And we love these businesses and we support them as best we can. And we uh, are, when we're desperate, they are invaluable when somebody makes a change. But we, yeah, we go to antique malls, we go, when I did Hateful Eight, which you mentioned, we were in Colorado, and I hired a couple of people to do the, a whole circuit of Colorado uh, antiques resources, which was very productive. Um, there were some great places out there, and they would shoot pictures and put them in a whatever, I can't remember, whether would Dropbox or something like that, and then we'd sort them out and figure out what was great, and then do another tour and get it, gather it all up and buy it and bring it in. And, you know, again, that's that was fantastic, but... So it just depends where we are, how much time we have, how much money we have, and you have to get, you know, all those levels have to be balanced and then uh, you put it together however you can. The sets are used in fantastic, realistic, and sometimes unrealistic ways. There's an art to creating a set, even if it gets blown up. No, really, blown up. Uh, there is the very real chance that might happen and perhaps Rosemary isn't even expecting it. Uh, yeah, that's it's part of the fun. I mean, you know, it's there to be used. It's not there to be a, you know, an icon of design. I mean, there are films. Uh, it's a little bit of, of a different story. I mean, do we love doing absolutely beautiful ones that are in a magazine? Sure. But, um, you know, you take the picture before they blow it up and they don't really blow it up. You have, you know, um, 
you know, to some extent, there's squibs and things that have to go in the sofa, but that means you have to have two of them, or maybe you have to have three of them standing by, or you have panels that explode. I mean, that's part of the fun is figuring all that out and working with the stunts and uh, effects teams. I mean, they're, you know, you can get mad at them for blowing your stuff up, but I used to actually get mad at them for blowing my stuff up only because there's a saying in special effects, which is, it's better to ask forgiveness than permission, which <laughs> used to drive me insane until I finally just accepted it. So, uh, you know, they don't always tell you in advance what they're going to put the this, this squib in and make big holes in. The issue is when you, you know, have rented precious things from individual people. So I learned a long time ago this lesson that with when I work with collectors and renting things and there is any kind of action in the set, I say, okay, do not rent this to me if this is such a precious object from your family heritage that you will be so hurt if we only give you money instead of the thing back. Yes, we of course pay for them if something happens. So that's that's been very important. Um, things happen and you can't always predict it. There is a plan, but then the plan changes. Rosemary talks about the movie Castaway starring Tom Hanks. The process took over a year to account for a a major weight loss by the character, literally by Tom Hanks. Rosemary also shares a story that revolves around a misunderstanding with director Robert Zemeckis. Everything comes down to interpretation and questions not asked. Castaway um, was a a, a complicated project and it was the, the life on the island was separated by a good year in film time, filming time. So actually I share that credit with um, my, my dear friend and colleague, Karen O'Hara. So she did the last part that was on the island or, and also a homecoming scene when after Tom Hanks had to lose a great deal of weight. So we did what me and my team did. We did the beginning scenes, which were, oh, I think, um, I remember specifically one of the more complicated things was doing the, 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 the airplane. I think it was a FedEx plane, as I remember. Yeah, it was a FedEx plane and a cargo bay, which was a set. So a very technical set um, that had to do all kinds of things and, again, explode and come apart. And so that was, a you know, I'm not saying it was the most exciting from a character standpoint, but certainly had to research. And, you, you know, a lot of the stuff is, 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 a, is just a planning operation and how you do it. And, you know, I'm, I'm not saying there's a lot of character interpretation in a FedEx plane. But um, you got to do it. That's what part of the job. And then, you know, we did, I think there was a Thanksgiving or Christmas dinner at, um, I think it was, uh, as I remember, Tom Hanks' girlfriend's parents' house or something. And that was, that was an, a nice middle-class family. Um, I did have a little moment with, with Robert Zemeckis because um, he told us that he wanted a middle-class family. And uh, we sort of did that with a nice wallpaper pattern on the wall. And um, they were supposed to be older parents and, um, you know, I had sort of traditional lampshades and it wasn't, it was to me middle class. And he was a very busy at that time and he showed up as a walkthrough, um, he wanted a walkthrough early of the set before they went on a scout to Fiji. So uh, we hurried to get it ready and he walked in and it was one of those moments where he's got a big entourage and people start making comments. and. He didn't like it. And it was a a rather difficult moment for me because I realized like in a big flash that a a man who's been around a long time and hasn't 
necessarily spend a great deal of time in what I consider middle-class homes. His level of middle was up here, way high, and my level of middle was lower. So I realized I had misinterpreted him, Robert Zemeckis, and that was that gives you an idea of how it can all go pear-shaped. So that that was that was a tough moment, and so obviously we had to redo it. And I think the wallpaper left, and it, it just became a lot more sleek and sort of a different kind of middle class. So that was interesting and um, a cautionary tale and a lesson for me to have a little more uh, be aware of the uh, many layers that can can influence somebody who's designing, who's directing a film, and that you have to be tuned into them. It's not necessarily about my choices. Disaster stories. I, I love them. We all have them. Collaborations allow you to share the pain. There is also tremendous value in remaining flexible. And by the way, disaster stories, in this case, not talking about the script, talking about on set in design. Yeah, there's many, many, many strands and many, many layers. Um, I mean, I have many disaster stories. You know, they they <laughs> uh, they go on. You know, but they all end up being these sort of crystallizing moments of awareness where you realize, oh, I should have talked to him about that. I I made an I I now see that I made an assumption. And you know, it's very fast paced, and you know, you don't always have access to all these guys. Um, they are in another town doing another project. Um, the, the actor suddenly comes in and doesn't like a set, you know, and it, I, I always take it to, I probably take it too much to heart, but, um, you know, getting better at that as I get into my older years. But, um, you know, I was like, oh no, I screwed up. But I, you know, I learn a lot and it's really interesting. And, you know, something in me keeps coming back for more and I keep trying to do it better. And it's really interesting though. Uh, all those levels, um, I, you know, better about more, more thorough with creating boards. I, I still do black boards on foam core and cart them around and try to get a meeting. I mean, nowadays we do keynotes and things like that as well, um, just to try to get everybody on board. Um, I mean, as far as you, you spoke earlier about whether the set decorator is the, the, the end all be all the, you know, lock the door and don't let them back in until your big reveal. Um, I don't really approach it that way. Uh, I, it's, it's a collaboration. It just is in my, in my world. It's, there's a lot of people involved and I learned a long time ago that I have to make my case and, um, if somebody doesn't want it, that is going to have more sway, you know, you can fall over like a broken tree or you can bend with the wind. I like bending with the wind. What's it like for a set decorator to come in and, and try to design for an existing and storied franchise and still a futuristic franchise like Star Wars, where much has never been yet imagined, yet it has? Rosemary will explain this further. It's critical to understand historical reference and respecting the past while remaining flexible and moving forward. Well, that's it's that is talk about unpacking what you just said. There's so many things in there. Um, Star Wars. I did Star Wars nine, which means there was one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight already done. So um, and really interesting to understand the history of all of those films and the take on all of those films. So one, two, three are considered sort of the absolute 
classics. And then, or it, then there were some done and I think four, five, six that were done like in Australia. And that, that was a big resurgence of, or the beginnings of CG work. So they were kind of seduced by the technology in some ways. And now those are seen as rather mannered in a way. They had a lot of sort of Art Nouveau twists and turns. And nowadays the general attitude is, boy, were those ugly. So then, I mean, you, you'll find people who love them, um, maybe some steampunk advocates. So, um, and then back to the basics for seven, eight, nine. So the idea that there's no idea what they look like, there is an exact idea what they look like. And there's a lot of opinions about what that history is. So, I, and I was, you know, I don't know why I'm suddenly the woman who's been hired to do the the last of franchises, <laughs> but yes, you have to learn what they did and then figure out where you can grow within it. Um, because these, um, you know, there's, whenever you do world building, you are, um, you're either dealing with a sleek world or you're dealing with a, uh, we call it kludge, which means that you're adding a lot of nernies and details onto things which is the industrial salvage side of it. Star Wars has a big industrial salvage side and that's the, re the rebellion, the rebels have that. And then the, the uh, first order has a sleeker look. So we do both. And um, as far as making, figuring out the style, so you, you fall into those lines and you move ahead. Um, it, they call it, retro futurism this the star wars style so it's not it's almost like a period movie it's not a futuristic movie if you look at star trek you're dealing with a different kind of futurism which is sleek and swoopy and generally is cleaner although i'm sure they have some dirty environments but generally that would be a cleaner look so if you sign up for a star trek that's what you're into again that thing has another giant long history so um, as far as the new sets that we do that aren't repeats of the old sets, um, it, we get to do all kinds of fun things. But there's, when we did Star Wars 9, for example, we had several new planets or cultures. One was called Pasana, which was a desert planet. Usually in Star Wars, there's a desert place. Sometimes there's snowy places. There's, you know, there's someplace weird. And in that one, we shot in Jordan in a desert called the Wadi Rum Desert, which is a wonderful national park in the kingdom of Jordan. Amazing place that people go to on amazing expeditions. It's fabulous. So um, we went there in the spring when it wasn't going to be too hot. And um, I built, uh, we had to design a tent city and we designed tents, which was a long process of design and uh, very big ones that were otherworldly shapes. So they weren't like your standard anything. And that was an enormous amount of engineering and work. It was my second project involving otherworldly tents. The first one was Planet of the Apes for Tim Burton, where I also designed a completely different thing um, that was, you know, you, you look at every kind of weird structure in the entire world ever, and then you try to come up with new things from it. I'm very research-based in my process, so coming up with completely things out of whole cloth, that's not really very, I'm not good at that. But we can, uh, but I work with 
some illustrators or concept artists who are good at coming up with stuff from whole cloth. So generally we start with a research palette and then come up with invention. I make no bones about the fact that I am not the sketch artist. I work with some of the best, what we call in the US illustrators in Britain, they call them concept artists in the world. And they are amazing what they come up with. The, the challenge then, I mean, once, and then it's sort of like, it gets massaged and I like, I like this from this drawing. I like that from that drawing. And then, um, oh, we need pattern on the fabric. Oh, we need to figure out colors on the fabric. Okay, now where, where are we going to get 5,000 yards of fabric that works and doesn't fade in the sun? Guess what? They all fade in the sun. Um, so you have to have a you have to have a painter standing by with a cherry picker with spray paint over the course of time as it sits out there in the desert for weeks. Um, and that's another story. But um, the design process is the beginning. And that is where you go. And then you have the engineering process because inevitably when you're doing, whether it's whether it was Planet of the Apes tents or whether it was Star Wars tents, it's windy. It's going to be out in the middle of nowhere for a long time. And they have to not fall down and they have to be safe for people, for extras and people to be inside. So that's another group of people that has to get involved. We have set designers that are very good at engineering. When I was doing Star Wars, my one of my assistant art directors, Clara Gomez del Moral from Spain was wonderful. And she was able to figure out how to get these things stand up, which is no easy feat and how to stretch them out and how to have pegs and make the pegs interesting. And, you know, it's like a whole opportunity for design within the structural um, uh, uh, strength and, and integrity. And then, yeah, you're embellishing and coming up with strings of wonderful things to fly in the sun along the canopy and wonderful finials and fantastic colors. And yeah, we got thousands of yards of fabric from India and, um, it was quite an operation. And we made all this stuff in workshops in London. We had a drapery team and a metals team coming together to do all that. And then once they were all made, so we didn't, in, in these big projects, you actually create your own studio facilities. You have your own shops, you rent space and you set them up and sewing machines and workers. And it's like, a, it's like this mini factory, but of course it's never been done before. So rather than a factory that's making things that have been designed for, and you're pumping out tires, you're making things that have never been done before. So it's all R&D, super fun. I love it. The people are amazing that I get to work with that are the craftsmen. Um, it's incredible. And then, you know, we have to finish them, pack them up, stick them in containers, put them on a boat, send them to Jordan. That takes five weeks for them to get there. So this is all done far in advance. And then we had a team on the ground to receive everything, unload it, unpack them, and then another process goes on because by that time the ideas have changed and you have to make some changes and, and embellish. So it's complicated and really, really cool. So that's what I, that's why I like doing these big world building projects. You get to do a lot of design on the fly and a lot of um, working with some amazing time. Historical understanding and frame of reference are so critical to application of, of personality to the characters. What are some of the experiences from which Rosemary draws her inspiration? I've been motivated by travel since I was a kid. I mean, my, um, I was very fortunate to have a traveling family. My father was a historian. His specialty was the French Revolution. He taught at the American University in Washington, D.C. 
And we, when I was three years old, we did a year in Paris because it was part of his part of his academic life to go every seven years to France to to write and study. And I went again when I was ten, and then I went again when I was in college and spent. In other words, three years of my life in Paris before the age of 21. So, uh, and we would travel around the U.S. to visit historical sites. And um, my dad was a great um, body of knowledge. I mean, he knew everything about all these places. So that was in my blood. And um, yeah, I mean, going places as a tourist and going places as a worker are completely different experiences. Um, Having uh, the, the knowledge of locals to work with, um, having their experience to observe more closely and get their uh, take on it, having a deeper understanding of the local political scene. Just by working with people, you get so much knowledge about what's happening. You know, what's, what's this driver's opinion about the ruling party? What's that, that set dresser's opinion about the group that's the mayor of his town. I mean, you get so many different perspectives and that's a kind of tourism that you cannot replace just by getting on a tour bus and running around or even a, a luxury tour of some kind. Um, but, and I love that. I mean, getting to know how people work, that's, I, you know, that's, that's what I'm all about. How do people work? How, do, how, do, how does power work? Um, how do people interpret that in their environments? How, what's learning even as a kid, because I had the privilege of living abroad and going to school in French schools, learning a language, just learning how people think and what language means and how different people, differently people think and express themselves because I knew English and I French and you can compare it. And guess what? They think differently, even in France, which is a culture much closer to ours than say the Middle Eastern countries. Um, so yeah, travel is a huge privilege that I've been able to take advantage of. And, um, I mean, I'm, uh, yeah, I try to get out and see what's going on. When I was in Jordan, my husband came over, my husband, Ken Haber, and we went to Wadi Rum. I mean, not, of course we went to Wadi Rum. We went to Petra, um, to Petra to see the amazing, um, city, ancient city there, which is a national treasure, of course world heritage site um so yeah we try to get out and see the main things do i have a whole lot of time to do that not really um you curve out you know a day on a weekend to go to the museum um i do it these days at my age i do a lot of recuperation on the weekends but uh yeah i mean it's amazing just being in a place and being able to experience it is fantastic i mean sometimes we're shooting i mean when i was in prague doing part of mission impossible um, we were actually shooting it as if it was Russia and as if it was uh, Eastern Europe. So, I mean, a different part of Eastern Europe. So it was Eastern European, but we weren't actually interpreting it as Prague. So there's different, you know, then you have to create a layer on top of that. Sometimes you're shooting in a place because it's the place itself, but sometimes you're not. So I learned a long time ago not to ask creatives which project is their favorite because I rarely get a straight answer. In lieu of that, I asked what some of Rosemary's most enjoyable projects were. Well, as far as favorites, you're right. It's like trying to have somebody say who's their favorite child because, you know, I've had lots of children. So lots because I haven't had any children of my own, but I've had lots of movies and um, I put a lot into them. So um, 
usually I always say, oh, whatever I'm working on right now is my favorite one because I'm, you know, planting all the seeds and trying to figure out how this one's going to go and responding to the situation. And that's part of the creative thing. Like, oh, if I could get this person, that would be great because they're good at, they know a bit about this kind of work and that would be a seed that you plant. Try to grab that person, all the recruiting and then all of the, because it's, it's such a recruitment process with the team. So um, I think my favorites have been, I'll just give an example of one that was really kind of fabulous, but a small picture that not a lot of, not necessarily a lot of people saw. It wasn't always that successful in the film, but it was a movie called The Rum Diary that we did in Puerto Rico um, that was um, about Hunter S. Thompson and um, where um, Johnny Depp put in a, a, a performance as Hunter S. Thompson that was kind of unique. Um, but there I, I ended up um, with a most wonderful local team. Um, and it was um, Monica Monserrate helped me, who I've actually invited to come and work on my current project. So, um, you know, I, I, I love finding gems, you know, somewhere. And um, she was just so good at research and such a fun person and smart and a good decorator and a good buyer. And so, so just uh, creating... I guess some of the most favorite memories come from the memories of people and creating wonderful lasting friendships with. So that I'd say is, is one of the more resonating things in the end, as I get older, you realize it's all about relationships and it's um, that probably because that's what lasts in your memory. I mean, I could forget sets, I could forget design processes, but I really remember the people. Having lived through the process of creating people, places and experiences i asked rosemary if she would want to live in any of the places and times of the projects on which she worked the answer will surprise you well i think um time periods you know when i was a kid and running around all the castles in europe with on my family trips or when i was a in college going and studying medieval architecture and going to the fabulous cloisters you know it, it, or going to the Middle East and having some romantic fantasy of, of, of living, or, or even the Alhambra in Spain, um, the fit fantasy of living in one of those beautiful palaces. But then you, know, you get a little older and you realize how badly women were treated. I don't want to live in any of them. Oh my God, what a mess. But uh, so now it's pretty good. Um, and <laughs> so, yeah, there's the romantic fantasy of living in these beautiful places. And then there's, you know, you know, a lot of these cultures are based entirely on slavery. And so many of them are based on the slave trade and the economic uh, wealth that comes from that. I mean, you know, so I have a huge appreciation for regular people and how they live, which is part of the source of my disconnect with Robert Zemeckis. Um, so there's, I love to observe how people without a lot of means live. So they're, you know, you know, call me a lefty, whatever. But, um, you know, yeah, now it's pretty good. Now it's pretty great. We have we have air conditioning. Here we are sitting in the south of the United States right now on a, on a hot summer day. I'm very comfortable. I have a fan on. I have a running water. I have a refrigerator. I have uh, a certain amount of, of economic equity with my male counterparts, maybe not 100%, but better than it used to be. Uh, I'm pretty happy with how that goes. Um, there's lots of inequity in the world and there's lots of problems, but it's 
better than it was. Following up on those ideas, how have these experiences shaped her work? How have her travels and engagement altered the way Rosemary thinks about her own experience, as well as those for whom she is responsible? I'm talking about real people, not the characters, but the, the people, her buyers, the people who, who work for her. And how, how is she addressing their quality of life as well as her own? I mean, designers now use the memory of that to create beautiful romantic designs, right? So, yeah. But they still have air conditioning. That's all great. Um, I don't know. It's, it's, that's, it's really interesting. I, you know, the consciousness raising we all went through, all us white people went through last last summer when the Black Lives Matter movement hit and, and you know, all the murders. I mean, it helped me a lot. It just helped me. I knew that when I was in the Middle East, I was dealing with cultures that are currently based on slavery, modern day slavery. Yeah, they'd maybe give the guys from Pakistan or Bangladesh a tiny bit of money to come over and build their giant skyscrapers for them, but not very much. And they're basically slaves when they work there. And it's just, it's, you know, it's, um, there's a lot of work to do, but that, the, I'm glad I have that perception. And it's just, there's, um, you know, there's labor fairness and things like that, that, that very much enter my everyday work, because I was driven by an, an ethos in the beginning of my career that was, you work until you drop, that that is how movies get done. And if you don't want to play that, you're out. And as time is going on, I'm realizing that how destructive that was in my life, how much it was buying into my own psychological need to be accepted and all of those things that happen to people. And um, the more I'm realizing that with my own staff, I want to be more equitable and I want to be more um, respectful of their actual um, quality of life and that people have time. I mean, certainly the, uh, crisis that's happened in our health with COVID has taught us that you only have so much time on this earth. And um, let's make sure to make time for, again, people and friendships and having a good workplace. So that's kind of my current project is making sure that I don't further that weird um, addiction to work that I have suffered from or worked under. Has it led to great success? I guess so. But um, you know, they certainly keep hiring me. But um, I'm, I'm re-examining that big time. Rosemary talks about the interpretation of characters and the fun of interpreting the villains through an understanding of their complex personalities. And it's true. Bad guys are more fun. Yeah, I mean, the, the, best, the best ones, even the villains have a human side, right? So when you... When you when you cast somebody or when you write, when the writer is writing, because um, we don't write them, we interpret them. When the writer is writing a villain as a completely cardboard character, they're not very successful. The villains that are successful are the ones that you kind of get where they're coming from. Because the truth is, of course, that even the worst characters on our planet are just people. And to characterize them as evil is placing them at arm's length from us and denying the fact that we could become those people in five minutes. So that is important to me that you get deep into each um, person. And I, the best writers, of course, know that. I mean, Shakespeare knew it 100%. The, the villains always had 
one, you know, very deep and complex uh, reasons for being as evil as they were or doing evil things. They weren't evil. They were doing evil things led by their psychological makeup, their upbringings. You know, he was a master at all that. So um, the best writers do that. And so we, we usually get pretty good, pretty good villains who have multiple dimensions and the good guys um, uh, in, uh, the actors in Shakespeare plays always say the villains are more interesting to play that, that Romeo is less interesting than Tybalt. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I mean, trying to get all the layers in there. Um, that's, that's pretty great. That's, that's the fun of it. This conversation was such fun for me. I've known Rosemary for quite some time. The excerpts from this conversation are so telling and it really shapes an understanding insofar as the differences between set decorators and interior designers. While that may be true, much of it is the same or at least similar. As we further think through this together uh, from this conversation, it's really interesting to me as well, and I, and I want to point this out, the process by which a set decorator like Rosemary Brandenburg defines the characters and how they live. Not, not what they say, because that's in the script, but how they live in the surroundings, which defines the context of the character. Much can be said the same way for designers who do the same for their clients. This is Curated Chill, the Aspire Design and Home podcast. Thank you, Rosemary. Thank you for your time. Thank you to our partners and Curated Chill sponsors like FiberSeal. And most importantly, thank you for taking the time to enjoy Aspire Design and Home. Thank you for listening to the show and loving sublime design the way we do. Until next time, come back to chill. <laughs>